Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, April the 24th, 2023. We've thought endlessly about storytelling and the environment. We've done shows, for example, with Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuthe, creative nonfiction writer and a historian about how to tell effective stories about our environmental situation. We even did one with the Harvard um, comparative literature professor, Martin Puchner, on uh, a 4,000-year-old reading list for confronting our climate emergency. It's not just what we read, but how we read. Uh, the media, and the message. Earlier today, we did a show with the very distinguished Oxford global historian, Peter Frankopan. He has a new book out, The Earth Transformed. And as one would expect of uh, the professor of global history at Oxford University, The Earth Transformed is a global treatment, a global story about our environmental crisis. Uh, but there's another way of looking at it, a much more personal, uh, fragmented, poetic way. And that's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Rishi Dastida. He is another uh, UK-based writer. Uh, he is talking to us from Vauxhall, a wet Vauxhall in South London. Um, and he is a, a much-published poet. Uh, Richie, uh, Rishi, sorry, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Frankopan's work, but there are so many different ways of telling stories mm -hmm. about our environmental situation. How do you position yourself as a poet? And do you see Neptune's pro projects, this new collection of poetry, as a kind of polemic? Uh, can poetry or should poetry be polemical? Hi, uh, hi there, Andrew. Um, Yes, poetry can be polemical. Um, the tension and the difficulties, of course, making it good poetry within that polemical frame, because, of course, polemic suggests a rather one-note, um, one-dimensional approach to what's being written, which doesn't necessarily lead to a great uh, reading experience. Um, so, but, yeah, so there is, a, there is an artistic, challenge within that. Um, certainly in this book, my approach has actually been, uh, and it sounds um, so, sounds maybe odd and a light touch to say it, but it's been one of tone. And what's one of the things that's really been animating me through this and through the writing of this is what happens if, can we, look at what's going on with the environment, with what we know is uh, the climate emergency now, but do that in a way that's light of touch, that's potentially humorous even. What happens if we try and take that tonal approach? What's opened up? Um, yeah, does it potentially take us into different casts of mind? Although might those happen to be more effective to seize on the word that you used? Um, uh, it's earlier. a very serious yeah. treatment of humour. We did a show actually a, 
again on humor and mm. uh, the story of the environment with uh, uh, an American academic, Aaron Sachs. He has yeah. a new book out, Stay Cool While Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. Yeah. Would it be fair yeah. to say that in Neptune's project, the humor isn't quite as dark as, as, as what Aaron Sachs is calling for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think if you, you know, want to put it on a on you know on a scale it's um shall we say it's twilight rather than dark um yeah you know, i didn't set out to write the book in the way that it's emerged it you know it's it, you know it came far more as the poems were accreting and the voice that was coming through was far more world weary far more sarcastic far more despairing in a way and that I found opened up a lot more space for reflection and hopefully a lot more yeah more space for a degree of contemplation rather than just necessarily jumping to the blackest of black or you know and you know feeling like gallows yeah uh, Aaron Sachs uh, suggests a, a gallows humor, which he says African Americans and, and Jews specialize in. You don't seem to be calling mm. for that. No, uh, no. Your, your book is described as a post apocalyptic jig and reel, reshaping mythology for the climate crisis era. Very, um, very intriguing. What does that mean? What is a post apocalyptic jig and reel? So, uh the post-apocalyptic bit is probably the easier one to the easier bit to get hold of there that's a lot of the poems in the book give feel of what you know i my persona in the book imagine might be left after you know, various civilizations disappear what's left behind what a you know what the creatures who might be there once the civilization so it's, is gone it's, um... It's science. It, it's it's the poetics of science fiction in a way. Um... There's yes, absolutely. There's there's a degree of that, and interspersed in it, I've put you know almost um, fragments and little flashbacks to when we might have been able to change path. What you know, and um, what might have happened if we'd um, shifted course earlier. So yeah, there's a little bit of that sense of. You know, um, moving to and to and from where we are now to where we might be, and just almost trying to posit the that sense of is this something we're comfortable with? Is this something that you know we're we're happy to let to let go? And that that's why I wanted that sense of jig and reel, you know, that sense of dancing round what an inevitability might be, and can we arrest that? Should we arrest that? Do we? Want Rishi, to? is that what? The poets bring to this party, and it's not really a party, it's more like a wake. Um, <laughs> yeah. The ability to dance, uh, historians don't, and they're not trying mm. to. Uh, policy writers of one kind or another don't. What do poets like yourself bring to this conversation, this issue, which others struggle with or forget about or simply never occurs to them? I characterize it, uh, yeah, a slight, yeah, as dance as as one of the interesting verbs here, um, precisely because 
you know, we as poets aren't really in a position to try and offer with any credibility policy solutions or, you know, imperatives around, you know, this must be done now. So what are we trying to do if poetry can actually do anything? It's trying to open up different ways of thinking. It's trying to open up different emotional states, trying to ask us to consider how we might feel, how should we perhaps feel? It's, uh, it, you know, to fall back to the cliche about unacknowledged legislators, it, the legislating, if any, that's going on here is trying to open up different emotional states that hopefully might, you know, um, an awakening is far too far too strong a word to suggest what poetry can achieve but it's notable that say in the extinction rebellion uh protests that have been going on in london over the past weekend there has been that sense of how can we you know bring you along with us on this movement in a way you know that is one where the journey is as much emotional possibly even spiritual as well as technocratic and dry and political. Um, and I think it's that latter aspect, that sense of carnival, that sense of emotional journey, that poetry is something is is what can contribute here. Rishi, in a way, and I'm perhaps putting words into your mouth, although you don't need me to put words <laughs> in um, you're a poet. Are you getting people to think the unthinkable? One of the mm. ideas I think you're trying to suggest in the book is, is what does it feel like to be a powerless God? Now, by definition, that's absurd. Yeah. Gods, by definition, are powerful. Uh, yeah. So, so what, what would a powerless God think or imagine in the face of our environmental crisis? Are you, are you imagining, are you challenging your reader with the unthinkable, with the unimaginable? I'm trying to, and I'm trying to, I, I'm I'm trying to posit that we have in our capacity to, you know, to make and remake the world, the capacity to make and remake and potentially save ourselves as well. Our agency, Rishi, which we've yeah. talked about many different times mm. on this yeah. show, especially in terms of the environment, our ability mm. to shape our world mm -hmm. and our future. Yeah. And I wanted to do that through the lens of, as you say, this absurdity, because it struck me that absurdity is, you know, is a valid response to what is going on, but also a response that isn't as much offered or heard, both in just you know, wider debates and currents around environmentalism generally um but also you know more specifically within artistic responses to um where we are with climate change right now um you know apart from you know don't look up really as you know as that mass uh, you know as that mass cultural response you know mostly we're in you know in a place of where uh, yeah, where tonally the the note is pretty singular. That tone is one of despairing, one of hand wringing, and yeah, it, yeah. From a from an artistic response point of view, from a communicative point of view, yeah, I wanted to see what happens if you know if yeah more notes come in absurdism, that degree of satire, 
you know, that degree of twilight humour, if not dark humour? And, you know, what sort of responses that potentially generates? When I was pitched your book uh, mm. by your publicist, they also sent a link to the final mm. quote-unquote warning <laughs> by the IPCC on our crisis. Are we in danger of these endless final warnings? I don't know if you have any kids, but the worst way of dealing with kids is to always say, this is your final mm. warning. If you don't mm. do this, mm. then I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Do we need to be a little bit more careful? And I'm asking you not as a policy guy, Rishi, but mm. as a poet in this apocalyptic language, always the final warning, the existential crisis, the apocalypse. And then we wake up the next day and whilst the temperature might be slightly warmer, mm -hmm. nothing much has really changed, for better or worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, beware the poet crying wolf, right? Be, beware, beware anyone crying wolf. I, I, yeah, I, the, there's a note of that that runs through the book, and almost I wanted to write beyond it, right, to almost accept the fact that a radical upheaval, a radical dislocation, more uh, more disruptive than anything that we could possibly imagine right now, is 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 coming, and that's it, right? We cannot fight that, um, and we have no desire, really, really, to fight that. So let's just jump ahead, right? What does that look like? Let's paint that picture. Let's, you know, as we all seem to be happily careening or a majority of us are happily careening towards it let's go there let's let's embrace it let's paint that picture and i don't particularly do that from any sense of warning you know i i as you alluded to i you know i have no kids so you know I, you know i've only got 50 more years of this or so and then you know i'm outie sayonara um so let's let's jump ahead you know um and yeah i I've been struck by thinking about the fact that, you know, I've been chided is probably a sort of too strong a word, but it's been pointed out to me over the last couple of weeks that, you know, talking about warnings is in a sense a sort of privilege because there are plenty of people out there already who are living the effects of what we might consider to be apocalyptic right now. You know, yeah. When uh, yeah, the temperatures yeah are already unlivable in plenty of places. There, yeah, ground yeah, soil is degrading to the point of no return in plenty of places already. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I appreciate the fact that yeah, Rishi. Uh, at the weekend, I was at the San Francisco Symphony. There was a a new piece by a Finnish composer mm -hmm. with a very strong environmental Earth-like quality. Mm -hmm. You retweeted. Uh, Simon Rattle's yes. speech last night, Simon Rattle, of course, being one of Britain's great um, mm. mu uh, classical music conductors. Is there a, a musicality, ideally, to your work? And yes. does is, is poetry where text and, and sound somehow meet? Is that the closest way we can get to music in, in, in work like Neptune's project? Ideally, yes, because, uh, yeah, Ask ask a poet, you'll get five different definitions of what poetry is. But 
a lot of the time I am thinking about how words on a page and words that hit the air can be made to move closer to have the quality of music. How do you find the rhythms and patterns within the way that that speech is arranged so it starts to move towards memorability? How do you find the beats and the meter that you know mimic come from that sense of the human pulse, the, the heart beating? How do you find, um, you know, how do you arrange patterns that create, you know, patterns of words that create images that that lodge in a way and, you know, have potentially a synesthetic response that often the very best music has, you know, also the very worst, the very cheapest of music has as well. So, yeah, absolutely. You're, there is, um, there's a weird tension in a lot of poetry where you are taking you're taking something that is made of language and trying to evoke within that sensations that are beyond language, just beyond language. And conversely, you're trying to pull from that place ways of describing that to then evoke that feeling in other listeners, in other readers as well. You edited a book, um, The Craft on Poetry, A Guide to Making Poetry Happen in the 21st Century. Is there something particular about the 21st century uh, when it comes to poetry? Or is this historic that poets have always had the same challenges, same opportunities, same deeply complicated engagement with language? Uh, there is nothing new under the sun fundamentally, is there? <laughs> um, um, I'm not going to gainsay Ecclesiastes on that. Um you know, as one of, if not the oldest form of storytelling that we have, poetry is indestructible, but within what any particular time frame that you wish to choose, there are always going to be interesting bits and pieces bubbling up around how one might write, what are the sorts of attitudes or otherwise one might write with, how does one reach an audience, how does one reach a marketplace. Um, and yeah, and it's interesting to address and see what's going on and take a snapshot of that at any given point. Because yeah, as much as one wants to be a writer and you know, almost in a sense, um pure in one's art and the way that one addresses it of course that can never be the case you are always enmeshed in a web of different social political and economic relations and poetry reflects that as much as it does the product of any one person's experience emotions and imagination as well and so the way in which one writes and how one gets one's work out there is always is always subject to change and and I, I'm not sure that we're living in in a point that's specifically unique when it comes to say challenges to the art form. There's um, there's potentially a sense of um, you know it not being as dominant as it might have been in literary cultures 
as it was 400 years ago, but so be it. Um, you know, fashions change and things, change, you know, things move on. Um, but yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff going right, on. Right Richard, now. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that hasn't changed, it's always hard for poets to make a living or they need mm -hmm. a day job. And you, like um, all poets, particularly the good ones, have a day job. You're the senior yes. writer at Venture 3. Mm -hmm. Which is, seems to me to be a branding company. It is. is that, yes. I mean, I don't want. I don't want to get you fired or anything. But <laughs> is that a bit of a frustrating job to be building brands as a poet, or are you able to create uh, a church-state division in your life between Rishi Dastadar, the poet, and mm -hmm. Rishi Dastadar, the builder of a brand? I actively try and um, blur that church-state divide if, is the honest answer um i i found that actually bringing a poetic sense of mind to the commercial workers help the work and i found that actually what i learned what i discover about clients and the way that brands are built has helped to inform my poetics and how i think about and write about the wider world and wider society as well so for me the uh, yeah, the need to have a day job has been ultimately pretty fruitful to my creative output all told and all the way around. Um, I appreciate that there are plenty of other poets, plenty of other writers who do who do not have the same view, and that you know, and that um, and that the day job is a hindrance or um, you know, or a break on their creativity. But for tell me, us I about the title, the Rishi. Neptune's projects. Neptune, of course, being mm -hmm. the eighth, the most distant major planet. Um, mm -hmm. Very intriguing. Very murky is it its murkiness that attracts you um it, i came at it from you know, from the god of the sea rather than anything that was interplanetary and i had in my mind's eye this this figure you know like we talked about earlier that weary godlike persona um who you know developed this personality that was quite bumptious quite um sarcastic but yeah, but also ultimately unknowable, precisely because of that size, precisely because of that distance. Um, you know, I think a, a lot about the fact that, you know, it's one of our most unexplored boundaries, isn't it? The deep sea and what goes on and, it, you know, the endless unfathomability. And that seemed like a, a lovely space to try and build a character out of. And so that's yeah that's where that came from and then the project bit almost yeah what happens when this character starts to try and be entrepreneurial a figure you know that comes from maybe more of a recognizable commercial society that we might have you know that we might be familiar with what happens if he if, if he has lots of ideas most of which are crackpot most of which are mm, yeah, this, uh, and and and, and... The poetics of water, I'm, I'm intrigued with. Mm, we, we've mm. done a number of shows on water. Many writers yeah, are yeah. attracted. We did one mm, with mm. Giulio Bocelletti, who has a, a book out, mm, Water, mm. a biography, a nonfiction version. But many novelists, particularly yeah. I've found novelist guests are particularly attracted to water. Is I know this is a bit of a dumb question, Richie, <laughs> but that, from a non-poet to a poet, that is there something particularly poetic about water, unknowable, unimaginable? ungraspable it's that last point that's the that's the most important the un the fundamental ungraspability 
of it and what it means to us as a species, right? I think I touch on this, there is almost at a primordial level, this desire to try and explain this substance that we fundamentally come from, we fundamentally escape from and draws us back in ways that we can both articulate but more often than not can't. And it somehow calls to us in ways that are beyond language. And of course, yeah, that's what the poets are here to try and do, to try and express that sort of deep fundamental feeling that lots of people feel and have in their souls. And yeah, uh, yeah, and for me, it functions in that way. But uh, you know, uh, t- ask another poet, and they might say the same about the sky. Right, but it's the water crisis that, in many ways, is the heart of our environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. We did a show a couple of years ago with Erin Brockovich, who doesn't need any introduction. She mm-hmm. just wrote a book about the water crisis. So it's it's a double crisis. I mean, or at least in your mind, given the mm-hmm. role, the central metaphorical yeah. role of water, and yeah. the fact that it's a real environmental crisis. We're running out of water. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be water wars water in mm-hmm. many people's eyes many geopolitical strategic people water is the new oil yeah absolutely and i think yeah and i think for all those reasons that you outlined it's important but i think there's uh, there's a level that's deeper than that forgive the pun which is fundamental which is elemental again forgive the pun that speaks the heart of you know of who we are and that's why it matters so much to so many people and it's expressed in these political ways but it's yeah that's that's almost uh a displacement of those deeper more fundamental tangible feelings that that we have as individuals and dare i say it as a species rishi i can't end without requesting something from a poem either a short one or maybe Mm -hmm. A little bit of one. It's one thing to talk to a poet. It's another to hear sure. their poetry. So perhaps you have something from uh, Neptune's projects. I didn't. I should have said this earlier to get you prepared. But I assume you have a, a copy yes. of the book lying around. You probably remember some of this stuff off by heart. Can you quote it off by heart? Do you need? To I can't. It? I am not. I am not that sort of poet. Well, give us a little bit as a taster for for your new book, your collection of poems, of uh, Neptune's Project, Rishi, to to end the show. Yeah. This is called Prophet Keen in the End Times. She is reading a book about death, not yours or mine, but everybody else's. And yet this does not trouble her unduly, as she knows that for you, me, everybody, the end is actually the best beginning. The thing to which we are truly addicted starts afresh, new pages, green lights, go signs. In another dream, I fate her as a prophet, not because she gives me a date to check out, but instead the first dance after eternity.